This is Very Bold Radio and Podcast with your host, Steve Teal, bringing encouragement through God's Word and through inspiring interviews. Go to VeryBold.com for information and updates and email Steve at VeryBold.com. And now here's your host, Steve Teal. I am Steve Teal. I am so blessed and honored to be with you each and every Saturday on KSLR AM 630, every Thursday on Facebook Live, of course, at Very Bold. And for those people, you time shifters, you people who catch the podcast, I appreciate you guys so much. appreciate the reviews that you've been leaving too, which are a blessing to us. So today we are doing a simple man Bible study, and we're going to talk about family dysfunction and misunderstandings and miscommunication. What a fun show, right? Aren't you just hooked on that uh, promise to talk about family dysfunction? I just did a hockey chapel. I'm the chaplain for the San Antonio Rampage here in San Antonio, the hockey team. We did a chapel yesterday and uh, had a great time. Uh, had a, five players, which is a record for me for the the Rampage Chapel. It was awesome. Some great guys. Just had a good time. Love to watch those guys uh, uh, mess with each other as well. It was pretty funny. But we looked at Joseph of the Old Testament. What I'm doing is the hockey players, it's so far kind of worked out. One of them is named Nathan. Of course, there's the prophet Nathan in the Bible. So last time we did a chapel looking at Nathan in the Bible. And so yesterday, Joey Lelegia, uh, one of my chapel leaders, of course, his name Joseph. So we looked at Joseph of the Old Testament. Some great Josephs in the Bible. Of course, you know Joseph and Mary. And then maybe you've heard of Joseph in the Old Testament, the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat as the play became. And so in that study, we found a blended family with severe dysfunction to the point of conspiracy to commit murder human trafficking their own brother and all sorts of messes. We can go on and on in the Bible with family dysfunction. But this is the Simple Man Bible study called Rock the World, where we are looking at Jesus often through the point of view of Simon Peter, the one who is called Rock, was named Rock by Jesus. The focus is not on Simon Peter himself, but Jesus And I think it's fascinating that speaking of family, that Jesus called not only Simon Peter, but his brother Andrew. In fact, it was Andrew who brought Simon to Jesus in the first place. Amazing guy. Jesus also called those two other fishermen brothers, the sons of thunder, John and James. So we see among the 12 apostles following Jesus, some solid family dynamics where brothers appear at least to be good relationship status brothers. Although I've got my suspicions that when Jesus called John and James and they left their dad on a Galilee shore, the nets were being put away and Jesus said, come and follow me. And John and James left their dad and their co-workers and off they go. I wonder what it was like at holiday dinners and family parties for James and John when they would go back with uh, their dad, Zebedee, and what that would look like. I wonder what it is. what was it like for him. You know, on Simple Man Bible Study, 
We like to use our imagination to get into the stories and just kind of think of them. Even though it was 2,000 years ago, they still had the same sort of thoughts and things going through their mind, the different emotions. So I do wonder what it was like that day when John and James said, hey, we are following Jesus. What was it like for their dad, Zebedee? How did he handle that? Was he supportive? Was he not? You know, this is not written about in Scripture, but sometimes we can just gather some implications. Now, what about Jesus' stepdad, adoptive dad Joseph? He was, I want you to know this background as we look at the implications, because Jesus, it is apparent, worked in the family business for many, many years. So this is what we know. I'm trying to give you just some framework of Jesus growing up. This is what we know. Joseph was alive when Jesus was 12 years old. And if you remember the story in Luke, he caused his stepdad or adoptive father, Joseph and Mary, panic when the preteen Messiah stayed behind at the temple while his family and relatives left Jerusalem and traveled back to Galilee. That is talked about in Scripture. However, it seems implicit that somewhere between that time and Jesus' public ministry that Joseph likely died. I cannot prove it to you. It doesn't talk about that specifically in the Scripture, but that is what evidence suggests, which would mean that Jesus, as the oldest brother, would likely lead the family business as to carpentry or construction or masonry, whatever that all encompassed. However many years that would have been, however many years that would have been, we have no idea. Was that when Jesus was 13, 15, 18, we don't know until the time of his public ministry when he was about 30 years old, not sure. But at some point, of course, we do know Jesus leaves the family business and becomes this traveling independent teacher. So I ask those questions. What was it like for his brothers to watch that happen? We don't know always, but we do use our imagination here. Perhaps it was a clean break. And another brother like James or Jude were more than ready to take leadership of the business. As Jesus tells them, what, what does he tell them? That's what I want to know that we don't know until we're in heaven. Uh, how do you leave the family business at that point? Does Jesus say, hey, guys, it's time for me to go about Israel, Galilee, Samaria, healing people of their sicknesses and driving out demons and, oh, being the Savior of the world and the Son of God What, I wonder, did Jesus say, and how did that conversation go over? We use our imagination just to get closer to the experience and feelings of what might have happened. We use our minds and we use our hearts. There were family dynamics that Jesus dealt with. Just to imagine what some of those relational dynamics would have been like should open our heart to understanding and even appreciating Jesus more. The Son of Man, the Son of God, he sure did experience the range of emotions and experiences that we do. So I ask and imagine, but cannot provide any airtight answers for you, what is it like for the four siblings of Jesus that are named? And that is James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon. By the way, yes, There are sisters, too. They just go unnamed by our gospel writers. But this is all referenced in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, Matthew 13, 55, and 56. What is it like to be a half-brother of Jesus, to get technical about that, and to watch Jesus grow up? 
and demonstrate such knowledge and understanding of God as he did when he was 12 years old? What is it like to work alongside Jesus in the family business? Then at whatever point for Jesus to just give it up, just walk away, for what purpose? What did he say? Did he just say, hey, I'm going to start teaching. This business is now in your hands. Imagine the questions. Have you ever made a career change? Have you ever just been ready to do something completely different? How did your family respond to you? What are some questions that might come up? How about these kind of questions? Maybe they asked, how are you going to support yourself? You can't just go and just start teaching. What's your business plan, brother? How do you have this figured out? How are you going to eat? And what about maybe one of them saying, don't think we're going to support your crazy ideas. You walk away from this, you're walking away from us, you are on your own. Now from Scripture, we accept the Gospel writer John's words that Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine at a wedding feast in Cana. Though John, to be clear, he called it Jesus' first sign, because for John, the miracles were not just indicative of Jesus' compassion, but they were also signs that pointed to a greater truth of who Jesus was. But we generally accept that the wedding at Cana of Galilee was his first miraculous sign, and I take that to mean it likely was the first miracle Jesus did too, not just the first miraculous sign with a bigger meaning behind it, pointing to vital truths about Jesus' identity. Though, oh, buddy, let me tell you, that miracle at that wedding had all kinds of signs about it. We'll have to wait for that part, even though we'll go to this wedding in just a minute. Regardless, it seems pretty clear that Jesus did not do miracles before his public ministry following that baptism by John in the River Jordan and the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus and raining on him. And the only way it could be described was like a dove landing on Jesus. So brothers in Nazareth, let's just pick on two of Jesus' brothers. Let's say James or Jude. What do you think if you're James or Jude when you first hear the rumors from Capernaum that your brother is doing crazy miracles where blind people can see and paralyzed people are dancing around and lepers are clean and deaf people can hear? What do you do with that? And brothers James, brother Jude, even brother Joseph, were you there at that wedding at Cana? Your mom was there. She seemed real involved in the feast because she was reporting the problem to Jesus. You remember the problem, right? After several days, they are out of wine. Mary sounds like she's someone close to the wedding party or the groom or bride's family. I suspect, though, it's nothing, uh, if nothing more than that, that some of the brothers would have been at the wedding. I think if Mary was there, Jesus was there. Maybe some of the brothers were there too. So did they miss this first miraculous sign? Maybe they're not standing next to Mary or Jesus when their mom reports this great social embarrassment that is occurring. They are out of wine. Maybe they're not watching their oldest brother respond. Why are you talking to me about this? Woman, it says, what does this have to do with me? My time, my hour has not come. Maybe James is standing by. Maybe if we look through James' lens, maybe James is giving Jesus a dirty look for his unhelpful response. 
Maybe James is a problem solver trying to figure out a better way. Maybe he's a little jealous that not only did their mom go to Jesus instead of him, but when Jesus dismisses her request, she still doesn't turn to James. Maybe it hurts a little when Mary's response isn't indignant frustration or a mom guilt towards Jesus. Hey, I was just asking for some help, Jesus, come on. Instead, if you're James, and remember, we're just imagining maybe he was there and maybe these are some of his thoughts. But your mom, if you're James and you're watching, she is completely undeterred by Jesus' seeming rebuff. What is it? If you were there, is it a twinkle in his eye when Jesus says, my time has not yet come? What is going on in Mary's mind that she's so undeterred she just continues? Does Jesus say it with a chuckle? Does Jesus actually appreciate that after years and years of Jesus' labor and work managing the family business, that Mary's faith touches back to the moment? where she was first told by the angel Gabriel of great, great things coming through her son? Does Jesus actually appreciate that Mary's request here may seem to us fairly presumptive and audacious, but something, something about that moment must have been beautiful and poignant, though if you go back today and read John chapter 2, verse 1 to 11, it's not going to read that way, but there was something very beautiful going on. What if you, James, what if you're watching and it stings when your mom turns with her own twinkle and spark of expectation and hope to the servants there? And when she says, do whatever he tells you, maybe it stings a little bit for James. This, do whatever he tells you. This is faith. This is trust. This is hope. When Jesus says, what's this problem got to do with me? And you, 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 yes, you recognize, like Mary does, it's got everything to do with you. Jesus, you are the problem solver. You are the way maker, as we sing in our churches these days. It's got everything to do with Jesus. Look for the light in his eyes, even if his words today seem to say it's not the right timing to help you. Look, understand his heart, his eyes, his blood spilled for you says, it is the time. It's always the time for me to help you. Maybe that answer isn't coming just immediately, but Jesus has that answer. James, were you there? Were you standing nearby? Did you watch that exchange? Did you skeptically scoff? Were you hurt? Did you have your own solution? Maybe you were the younger brother ready and chomping at the bit to run the family business. Maybe your best day, James, was when Jesus said to you, hey, it's your job now. I'm giving you the keys. I'm giving you the reins. Maybe you just waited for this opportunity. Your brother, Jesus, chucked it all and left, and your mother, Mary, still looks to him instead of you. James, maybe you left the room too soon. You see that look of trust and love in your mom's eyes as she turns from Jesus to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. And in frustration, you sigh and you say, I'm out of here. Did you miss it, James? Did you miss when Jesus tells the servants to take the six big ceremonial pots, 20 to 30 gallons each, and fill them with water? James, if you had stayed, 
you would have seen the servants roll their eyes and cast glances of, is this guy crazy at each other? You miss them shrug their shoulders and say, well, we're getting paid either way. This man wants us to fill these containers. I don't care if he wants to take a bath in it. Filling jars, by the way, speaking of waiting on God, he has the answer for you. He knows the answer. But guess what? Filling jars, ceremonial pots with 20 to 30 gallons each, that takes a while. That takes some obedience when it doesn't make any sense. What he might direct you to do today as you're trying to listen and understand how he wants to solve this problem, it may not make a lot of sense. And sometimes we argue with God and say, why, why fill all of this? Are you kidding me? But they do it. Do whatever he tells you. Does James come back around when they finally have finished filling those ceremonial pots with water? Does he come back around for that climactic point when the water's been turned to wine and the master of ceremony says, oh man, this is the best wine. Most people serve the best wine up front and save the cheap stuff for later, but you have saved the best for last. 120 to 180 gallons, somewhere in there. That's a lot of great wine. Maybe James and Jude and Joseph and Simon, the brothers four, aren't around. But do you think when their mom comes home finally from the wedding feast that the first words out of her mouth are how beautiful the bride's dress looked or how the decor and flowers and dresses were on point? I don't think so. I think what Mary is talking about is what her son and maybe more important when Mary tells them, you should have seen your brother your brother Jesus, what he did with water, and how he didn't just do it with a handful of glasses, but how he did it with abundance and overkill and surprise. We see in Scripture that sometimes Mary is able to keep clues and promises and prophecies close to her heart as she ponders and mulls it all over. But I'd bet money that this wasn't one of those times. So it begins. Not a lone, one-off, isolated, bet-he-can't-do-that-again miracle, but just the beginning. So, James, what do you make of the stories you hear? That your brother Jesus is even raising some dead people back to life. Do you dismiss it or embrace it? How do you explain it if you dismiss it? The same brother you work side-by-side for years is suddenly driving out demons from people. The name of this Bible study series is Rock the World, and I promise you, James' world is rocked. If you are a brother or sister of Jesus, and he's the same person, but now he's doing miracles, and you're hearing about it, and the crowds of people are following him around, how do you respond? What do you feel? Use your imagination here, and then we'll look at what we do know. And we again shift from James' point of view and our speculations, and we take the perspective of Simon Peter the Rock. We take his point of view because it's written in the Gospel of Mark. An early Christian history reporter tells us that Mark worked with Simon Peter and that he wrote down Peter's teachings. So if that's true, it must have left some deep impression on Peter that Jesus' family, in the midst of this new movement of miracles and healings and demons being driven out and a teaching that now has authority and understanding, it must have left a mark on Peter. 
So this is what Mark, the gospel reports, Mark chapter 3, 20 and 21. Then he, Jesus, went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to, let's just pause for a second from scripture, fill in the blank now. When his family heard it, they went out to what? To celebrate? To reason with Jesus? Have a come-to-Jesus meeting with Jesus? Sorry, that's just only a little funny. Out of our imagination, and now back to the book, it says this, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, fill in the blank, I'll tell you exactly what they were saying, he is out of his mind. Remember, this is Jesus' family. So I don't know how dysfunctional your family is or what you've been through, but the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the one by whom and for whom all things created, the image of the invisible God, the radiance of the glory of God, the Word become flesh. His family was kind of messed up too, don't you think? Well, you might say, well, that's just an isolated verse, isn't it? Besides, why don't Matthew and Luke echo Mark's words as they usually do? For one, Mark's gospel seems to fit as Peter's gospel, because we would say as we're learning about Peter, he's pretty raw. And that's what this gospel is. It's raw, though it is inspired and breathed out by God. It lacks a certain filter, but it it abounds in honesty and authenticity. Peter, perhaps seemingly unaware that this little story might be an embarrassment that Jesus' own family didn't just agree to disagree, but tried to physically haul him away. You know, it's funny because the fact that it's an embarrassing story is one of the reasons it rings so true, and it must have left a big impression on Peter and on Mark. The family dissension also imprinted on the gospel writer John. In John chapter 7, verse 2, Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to Jesus, Here's your brothers, listen to them, James, Joseph, Jude, Simon. Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Kind of sounds like the brothers four think he's out for fame and glory, and they're egging him on. Kind of reminds me of Joseph in the Old Testament that I looked at yesterday, how his brothers despised Joseph. How do you respond to what these brothers are saying? If they're saying to Jesus, hey, Jesus, go, man, you're big stuff, you're big celebrity, a big star, all these things you're doing. It's funny that they use those words. They can't even seem to bring themselves to say all these miracles you're doing. No, just all the stuff you're doing, all the all that stuff you're doing. Go be famous. And then they turn each other, and it's like, we'll see what happens to this dreamer. I think they are hoping that Jesus will fail, that Jesus will be shown to be the embarrassment that he really has been to them. Can you imagine this dysfunction? What do you say when your own brothers have said, you're out of your mind, you've lost it, meaning, as we said, you're an embarrassment to us. 
go ahead, Jesus, just go do your thing. What is your response if you're you're Jesus? What would you say? I've got some ideas. (laughs) This is one reason I'm not Jesus, and Jesus is. I might say, hey, you big jerks, I've been doing all this in public. And which thing do you want me to do there? Do you want me to raise someone from the dead like I did that little girl? Or that young man in Nain, you hear about that, guys? A funeral procession. I just walked over and brought him back to life. Is that what you're talking about? Instead, what does Jesus say? See if these words don't sound familiar today. He says, my time has not yet come. Jesus takes us right back to that village, Cana, and a wedding feast gone bone dry, and social embarrassment that was going to scar a young couple's marriage, and says, my time has not yet come. I think Jesus will not be manipulated, will not be played. Even in the face of family opposition, Jesus is in complete control. My time has not yet come. Of course, if you read cover to cover on the Gospel of John, you realize that the writer's been deeply impressed by Jesus referring to his time or his hour of glory as his coming death on the cross. This is his victory. This is his glory. Here, his brothers have no idea that the way he will really show himself to the world is not through those miracles, but through his death on a cross, that he will draw people to him. John Chapter twelve twenty seven. Now is my soul troubled, Jesus says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus, though, answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John writes, He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Radio listeners, I want to encourage you guys, there's more of this teaching coming, to go to our Facebook Live, go to Very Bold, like Very Bold, and listen to the entire teaching. Podcast and Facebook Live, we're going to march on, but I encourage our KSLR faithful listeners, you are a blessing wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Remember this great hope that we have, and be very bold. All right, we're back to it, Facebook Live. All of this. All of the family's dysfunction or the brothers thinking Jesus is crazy out of his mind. While Simon Peter, though, that perspective, he walks with him every day. Peter was there morning after a long, exhausting, frustrating night when Jesus says, Hey, Simon, try and lower the nets one more time. Simon saw the miracle up close, a very personal miracle. That is what I want for you, a very personal miracle from Jesus that is just for you. And Peter comes and throws himself at the feet of Jesus, saying, get away from me, I'm full of sin. Simon Peter watches Jesus heal an outcast leper, not just with a word, but also with a touch, willing to give that man emotional healing, willing to meet that leper in the midst of his being unclean and touching him. That's what he does for us in the uncleanness and the garbage of our souls. 
in the stuff that you don't want to talk about, you don't want to confess. That is where Jesus goes and touches us and heals us. Receive that healing, that spiritual healing that he wants to give to you. Simon Peter seen a paralytic lowered down through a roof by this paralytic man's buddies and then heard Jesus say, friend, your sins are forgiven. That's what he's saying to you today. Then just to show his authority to forgive sins, he tells the man to get up and walk home, jog home, run home, dance home. I don't care, but you get to go home on your own two feet. Simon Peter has to be thinking, wait a second, Jesus' brothers, they think he's crazy? Wait, who's crazy here? How can his brothers miss this one? You want to talk out of your mind, Peter is thinking. Peter's thinking, I saw two demon-possessed men, no clothes, scary as all, screaming and scaring people, harming themselves. I saw crazy, and I saw your brother, James, cast out the demons and saw that man who was crazy sitting there just in complete peace of mind. How can you brothers think he's crazy? Peter, how your heart must have soared when people tried to tell Jesus on another occasion Hey, your family is calling for you. They, they're asking for you. And Jesus' response, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at Peter and those sitting around with him, he said, here are my brother. Here are my brothers. Here are my mother. Here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. I wonder how Peter watched Jesus handle not just his critics and his opponents, but his family critics. How do you handle your critics? Maybe some family critics in there too. How challenging it must have been for Jesus to endure those insults of his younger brothers, maybe being rude to him, maybe mocking him. How frustrating that your own family would tell people they think you're crazy. How much patience must Jesus have had for them, for us? I long to know, as Paul Harvey used to say on the the radio famously, the rest of the story. Unbelieving brothers, what happened to those four brothers? I don't think I can speak for Joseph or Simon because I think history in the Bible is fairly silent on them. But not only is the Bible quite loud about James especially, but also Jude, because they become two of the writers of the Bible. That's right. Near the end of the New Testament, you see the book of James. That is that half-brother of Jesus. You see that letter, short letter of Jude. That is another half-brother of Jesus. Those two guys who thought Jesus was crazy, something happens. And James, we know even more. He becomes the pillar of the Jerusalem church, as you can see if you look up Acts chapter 12, verse 17 and following. Look in Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 1, verse 19, and chapter 2, verse 9, to see James, the half-brother of Jesus who thought he was crazy, becomes a pillar and a leader. (laughs) Crazy. How I would love to know more, but what we do know also is 1 Corinthians fifteen seven, as Paul shares an early church creed. I mean early, a church recited creed about Jesus' resurrection appearance. And who do you find in 1 Corinthians fifteen seven? James himself. It says this, then he, Jesus, appeared to James, then to all the apostles. 
Oh, come on, James. In your epistle, please tell us what that resurrection appearance was like. Please, Paul, talk about it somewhere. Luke, you're such a great storyteller and historian. How would you not please tell us about what that was like when Jesus and James talked, when Jesus was the risen Lord, defeated death? What was that like? Or maybe there were very few words at all. (laughs) I would love to hear and peek in as James says, I was wrong. (laughs) You're right. Oh, how I wait to watch the game film being played in heaven. I want to see it. I've got questions for James. But what we do know is, yes, that same James did indeed become a rock in the Jerusalem church for Jesus. Even from Jewish historian Josephus, we learned that James was killed for his beliefs in his brother Jesus. That's amazing to me. So, your family, Jesus' family, Jesus didn't give up. He endured Yes, the whole right timing, Jesus often seems to say the time is just not quite right. My time is not quite right. It's something we struggle with, right? But you, you don't have to give up on your family. They may think you're crazy because of your faith in Jesus. They may think that you've lost it because you believe in Jesus. Keep enduring. Keep believing. You don't have to let yourself be manipulated by their jabs Maybe some of them try to draw you into a fight and discussion just trying to push your buttons. You don't have to let them do that. Keep praying, keep waiting, keep trusting, and keep listening for Jesus' voice. Keep obeying what Jesus tells you to do. When Jesus tells you to be silent, be silent. When he tells you to be kind, be kind. If he tells you to speak a word, then speak that word. Listen. If he can turn water to wine, if he can turn his unbelieving brothers into Bible writers, in his time he can turn your brother, your sister, your husband, your ex, your wife, to his heart. So go back with me to Cana one more time. Sneak up as Mary tells the servants the words you and I need to remember today. Do whatever you he tells you. I'm praying for you. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Very Bold Radio and Podcast with your host, Steve Teal, bringing encouragement through God's Word and through inspiring interviews. Go to VeryBold.com for information and updates and email Steve at VeryBold.com. VeryBold.com